You know Dasher, and Dancer, and Prancer, and Vixen, Comet, and Cupid, Donner, and Blitzen. But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never let poor Rudolph join in any reindeer game. Then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? Then how the reindeer loved him as they shouted out with glee. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, you've begun his story. So that was a horrifying movie. What, Rudolph? Yes. That one? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a horror story. Okay. <laughs> Cal, you want to chip out on this one? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I kind of look at it largely as, as artistic. It, it tends to reflect a really, really, really ugly thing. Um, it does it badly. But I guess I put up with more trauma in my art. And I know art directed at seven-year-olds is not supposed to be that traumatic, but... Yeah. Yeah. That should... Yeah, we should actually introduce. That's... uh, I'm Andy. I'm Emily. I'm Cal. Hey, Cal. (laughs) (laughs) This is our first podcast with a guest, and we are very excited. Yeah, they already know us. Do you want to... But do you want to tell them a little bit about yourself? All right, um, my name is Cal Montgomery. I am uh, a disabled activist. I'm autistic. I use a wheelchair, other fun stuff. I speak intermittently, obviously, I speak today, uh, but I have used augmentative communication for large portions of my life. And I like to obsess about things that a lot of other people don't care about. I guess one of them was Rudolph's. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and this is the Madness in Movies podcast. Yeah, where we look at, what, what's our, shoot, I can't always forget the tagline tangled up. We look at pop, pop culture. culture through the lens of madness. Yes, yeah. and we find madness in the places least expected. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't know how you came across it, but definitely, Cal, as far as I'm concerned, you were the, the inspiration and the reason for this episode. Yeah, basically, I saw this Facebook post, um from Cal that talked about Rudolph and this just amazing disability studies, disability justice informed way. And I was just like, wow, like, yeah, this, this is something we need to talk about. Holy crap. Call him. Let's, let's do this. <laughs> yes. Um, so for Christmas, we are doing Rudolph. 
which is a horror story <laughs> about a young boy who is abused by his parents and pretty much everyone, including Santa Claus. Oh, yeah, Santa Claus is a dick. Horrifically, <laughs> verbally abused, ostracized, excluded because he has a red nose. That's literally the only reason. And <laughs> so he is banished from his community, from Christmastown. Um, this is a young child we were talking about. He was banished and thrown into the cold, cold yeah. winter he by comes in, He comes into puberty while he's out there. Yeah. Like, he could starve. This is a horror story. And um, <laughs> then he meets an elf along the way. A little gay elf. Oh, yeah. He's he, totally queer. He is. Okay. He is totally queer. He's got that, like, lisp. Why am I such a misfit? <laughs> I like him. He's totally yeah. got the gay voice. Kind of does. So, yeah, so he meets this elf who doesn't want to be an elf. He wants to be a dentist. And um, and they kind of go along, and uh, they have adventures. And then, finally, they Rudolph comes back to Christmastown and basically proves his worth and proves that he actually shouldn't be ostracized because he has a red nose. He should be loved by his abusers and because he can guide Santa's sleigh. And if his abusers just are able to make use of him and use of that red nose, then maybe they can love him after all. And so the movie ends with Rudolph returning to his abusers and living with his abusers happily ever after, who now find him useful and so regret their ways. The end. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really regret them. They just learn that in this particular case, they're not right. That's when shows up with a green nose, you know it's going to happen all over again. That's very true. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, that makes it so much worse. Yeah, that's... <laughs> It's so horrifying. <laughs> I think it's really horrifying because it hits like really close to home. I think, Cal, when I read your post, I was like, wow, my whole life I've like fallen for the Rudolph story again and again. Like I keep feeling like if I can just prove how useful if I, I am, if I can just prove like how skilled or worthy I am despite my disability, then it will be okay and people will love me and... I will no longer be abused or whatever. Um, and like, it's, yeah, it, it's just very seductive, very tempting. Um, and it's also kind of horrifying. But that's a fairly mainstream vision. It is. I mean, look at, look at, right, go, go look at uh, Disability Employment Week or month or however long it lasts. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so much of that material is. And here's this guy, and we never thought he'd be employable, but then he found this job, and he was really, really good at it, and he made them a lot of money, and isn't that awesome? Or it's, look, look at these employees with disabilities. They have lower absentee rates. They have lower turnover. They're so great for that job. Good. I mean, it's all about they're, they're useful. To you. It's not about, you know, uh, our society depends on everybody working. We need to find a way to support everybody so they can do it. It's... If, it's really all about, look at these people and they're completely useless. Yeah, disabled people, what do you know, don't always have the option to just quit their jobs. So they just stick <laughs> around. It's amazing. <laughs> they can't leave, so they never will. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I think it's like perpetuating that message too, right? Like, you better not screw up because, 
you know, we're, we're employing you and you should be grateful for that. And so stick around. Um, and then we'll brag about how great you are because you work so hard and you don't screw up and we'll make it into an achievement. Oh man. And, and realistically, this is a strategy I use every day. I mean, if there's people that I want to be friends with or that I want to work with or whatever, I mean, I sit there, I strategize, how do I become useful to you? What do you need that's not getting met that I can go learn to do? Uh, this is, and, and it's the best approach I've ever learned. In fairness, I may have learned this from Rudolph. I don't really remember where I got some of these ideas, but it's amazing to go back and look at the child's literature I read and say, oh, look, you know, here's this thing that I've just spent the last five years working on in the children's book. So I may have learned it from Rudolph, but it's, it's a, I think it's a strategy a lot of us use. And how do I make myself tolerable to you by fulfilling a need that you don't want to fulfill for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, we just, I don't know. I think that's definitely something that we've been doing uh, Disney Disney December. So we've been, this podcast, we've been doing all Disney movies all month. And yeah, it is just horrifying the things that we tell our children or the things that we, <laughs> like it's, it's all there and it's all wrapped up in a nice, I don't know, candy covered, you know, you know, they put a little bow on it and give them big, you know, big cartoon character eyes and, and then go, look, if you're weird, no one will like you. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry. You can escape from no one liking you, even if you're weird. If you just, you know, prove your worth, then maybe it won't be so bad. Maybe things will turn out okay. Yeah. I kind of think it's something we tell all kids, though, not even the weird ones, but just like, look, like, we'll love you. Like, we love children, right? We, we love them. They're, you know, adorable. And we're so excited when someone is about to have a baby. It's the biggest deal in the world. And, you know, ba babies are cute and we're so excited and we love them. But here's the thing. You better grow up and you better perform the way we want you to. And you better do well in the workplace and succeed and make money and contribute and, you know, withstand the pain of going to work every day and um, yeah. performing all the labor we need. And if you don't, then you might end up starving or you might end up ostracized or you might end up miserable. So be careful. We really love you. It's like really horrifying. I feel bad. Like I was teaching uh, like an after school program for a few months and I even found myself falling into this that like because there was like this pressure on me mm -hmm. to like get the kids to stay in line, you know, don't let them make messes, don't let them be too loud, but also we need to see results, whatever you're, you know, I was teaching photography and like, they better have some good pictures and I would be like getting harassed, like, you know, why, why the, the, the pictures that these kids are coming back with are crap. Are you sure that you're teaching them right? Like it's like, it's on me, right? Like, like I'm being pressured by that. And so then of course, like, my favorite kids like I, I have one girl like and like clearly remember that was like my whatever like the favorite in the class right like she was 
friendly and outgoing, but also a really good photographer, but also didn't make a lot of problems and just like checked all those boxes and like, oh man, that was, that was like, she could get away with anything. I, I didn't give a shit. Send her off, you know, send her off to the bathroom. Oh, of course you can go to the bathroom, please. You're one of the good ones. Mm. But like, oh man, like, and I, I feel like even there, like I'm like reiterating that like I'm, I'm I you know I'd come home and record these podcasts about how you know about all the, these kinds of things and how we what we do to, you know what we do to kids is awful and how we're programming people and then I'm going out and doing the exact same thing again the next day because of the pressures that are on me and like just the way everything is set up I'm just like crap it's a little blow pressure parents I mean from the very early days you take your child in at a couple of weeks a couple of months you know up uh, to a year old and they're getting weighed, they're getting measured, they're getting compared to like these developmental charts, you know. And you hear these first-time parents, and they're like, my child is in the fifth percentile of weight, what do I do? Yeah. Because somebody's got to be in the fifth percentile of weight. That's how percentiles work. Right. Uh, <laughs> is there any indication that the, the child is not thriving? Then I don't care. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then parents too, I think are blamed and told that they're failures if their kid doesn't measure up or isn't in a certain percentile. Um, and that's, you know, we measure their success as well and say that they're doing something wrong. Um, and I think a lot of parents face like even just having their kids taken away if they're told that they're not parenting their kids correctly. And yes, I mean, low, low weight can be a really important indicator of some things. It could be an indication that the child's not getting enough food. It could be an indication that the child has a, a digestive issue and so it's getting enough food, but it's not getting enough nutrients. I mean, these are important things to look at, but we use them in these horrible ways, too. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah, I, I was recently reading Eli Clare's Brilliant Imperfections, and I'm, like, obsessed with it now. Um, but he talks a lot about growth hormones and how children, I think especially boys with low height, are put on synthetic growth hormones, and that's kind of becoming a bigger and bigger industry. Really? Um, yeah, and it's what? fascinating to me because I think my parents considered it a little bit. I think I have a cousin who maybe was put on growth hormones. That's so weird. And... Yeah, and my parents considered maybe doing it for me because I am short, but I remember them being very concerned, especially my grandparents. They were very concerned about how short I am, which is... You're the same height as your mom. It's genetics. What's the problem? But they didn't want me to face that. I think my mom didn't maybe didn't like being short or something, and so... Well, she doesn't like anything about herself. <laughs> that's accurate. <laughs> I think... But yeah, it is. it's just fascinating how we decide that, oh... That that person is too short. We don't like that. There's nothing inherently bad about that. There's nothing that inherently causes suffering. And yet we're like, we have to fix this. We have to change this. There must be something we can do about it. Oh. And I think I think the Rudolph story tells us why. Because our theory of humanity is pretty much they're, they're, the pack is going to kill anybody that's any different. And that's not actually mm. true. We haven't gone after Michael Jordan for being different kind of basketball player than most of the rest of humanity, have we? We're no. cool with him. For that, I mean, for that, at least. We haven't gone after 
all kinds of people who do things that are different in ways that we expect. Right. But, you know, and there's really literally nothing about a red nose that has to be bad. Right. right. You know, I mean, if, it was, if Rudolph was turning around killing people with axes, then yeah, I would say. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. If he was, like, killing Santa with axes or killing his parents, I wouldn't really blame him. He's being pretty badly abused by his parents and by Santa. A lot of reindeer are, uh, the elves are. For them. I mean, he had a red nose before they bullied him. Yeah. He was axe murdering people before they bullied him. You know, I would, I would, I would say that's a difference that doesn't deserve bullying, but it deserves something. Yeah. A red nose. You can celebrate it. You can denigrate it. You can ignore it. I mean, you have all kinds of options with a red Yeah. And it's, yeah, it was fascinating to me how little that, like, mattered to Santa, I guess. Like, like at the beginning when he's, like, singing, doing his whole song and dance before they realize that Rudolph has the nose. Like, Santa's doing this whole dance about how he's his reindeer. They're not, the line is, they're not just, they're not just plain deer. They're the fastest deer I know, right? And it's all this song of, like, accomplishment and glory and whatever. And then as soon as he sees the nose, he's like, oh, well, screw you. But, like, without even asking, like, it, it doesn't, like, he, he does this whole spiel about how, he, you know, he wants the best and the fastest. And then he doesn't care if Rudolph is fast or strong or can fly really well or whatever. It's like, oh, gross, get that out of here. Uh, and, but then, and then at the end, like, the, the, the inversion, I don't know, like, was just fascinating. I'm still trying to, like, turn this over in my head. It was that at the end... Rudolph has the nose and again Santa doesn't ask if he's fast or strong or whatever like it doesn't matter he's putting him on the A team whether or not he can play I mean essentially you know like he's he's putting Rudolph you know you get to lead the team just because of his nose you know if Rudolph could have been a total klutz and it doesn't matter they'd be like he'd be like whispering to the other reindeer like just put up with it just deal with him for tonight we'll we'll figure it out afterwards yeah he's not really a leader he's a headlight yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Just because the headlight is in front of the car doesn't mean it's leaving the car. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it was just so weird to me to, like, like lead on. Like, clearly, like, like this is the A team. This is the prestige. You know, this is the varsity football team, whatever. And to just And then to just be able to just throw that away in an instant. I wonder what the story would have been like 100 years earlier. Because it's interesting... The original story was from, like, the 30s, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we're into the age of, of mass production and basically people as interchangeable parts on... on oh, that's interesting, yeah. On a line. Although, yeah. to be fair, Henry Ford was already doing his thing well into the 30s, right? Didn't yeah, he but start one thing is, is that existed. Yeah. That's the world into which Rudolph was... Mm-hmm. Didn't he start like right before that? Maybe like 10, 20 years before that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, but he's he's from the mass production era. Yeah. When we really want plug and play workers, mm-hmm. right? We want people with these special talents because mm, they're hard to manage. <laughs> Personalities, gross. <laughs> yes. Workers are different. And, you know, this one's great at making tables, and that one's really great at, you know, getting a shiny polish on, on the furniture or whatever. That's harder to manage than that they all do everything exactly. Right. Hmm. Yeah, because if, yeah, yeah. And it really was driven as a management strategy. 
how to produce more stuff with less resources, including paying your workers less. Interesting. Which, as I have noted, is an issue of the North Pole because the business model in the capitalist world sucks. Santa yeah. is making no money on this stuff. So he's got, he's got to keep labor costs down. Right. Yeah, how I don't know. Not not to like maybe like get lost too far down this rabbit hole, but yeah, where how do they afford all these toys? Are they just harvesting all the raw materials during the summer? Like uh, grant money for providing a sheltered workshop for the elves is my theory. <laughs> and <laughs> And what what exactly is a sheltered workshop for the uninitiated among us? Um, sheltered workshops are work sites that are specifically for people with disabilities who are regarded as unable to make it to competitive employment. Huh. Uh, they make less than minimum wage in almost all cases. So there are Whoa. there exist workshops where people do in fact make competitive wages, but they have a mission to give people less than competitive wages, and also Whoa. require them to be at work for 30 hours a week, even if there's only like five hours a week of work. Oh. So, you know, I've known people who come home with bi-weekly paychecks under $10. Wow. But they're required to be there in case there's work? Well, because it's also therapeutic. The idea is mm-hmm. pre-employment. Right. Although there are real incentives to keep your best workers there and not ship them out. Because Cause why would you? Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, as we're seeing move toward phasing out minimum wage, or sorry, sub-minimum wage, which is people who do not have to be paid minimum wage like everybody else, um, and phasing out segregated settings, we are seeing most people actually do make each other competitive. Some do not. Some need alternate things during the day because they're not going to get competitive jobs in the current system. But most people who have been told for decades that they cannot possibly work in mainstream employment can go work in mainstream employment as soon as they receive the services and supports to do so. Hmm. Dude, that is so fascinating. I did. That's like a whole world that I didn't know existed. Hmm. That would explain it. Yeah, it <laughs> would. When did the idea of work is cure come about? Work is dignity, is the theory. So, like, if I'm useful to society, by which I mean an employer, then somehow I have greater dignity than if I'm not useful. Right, right. And, I mean... I believe in work, right? I like working. I like doing things that make me feel like I've accomplished something. Um, whether or not that's financially mm-hmm. rewarding, I don't know. But um, but yeah, I mean, and for people who need to support a family, if the only way to get money is to work. Yeah, there's work is very tied up in who you are. But uh, this idea that you're not, I think I read a fascinating article about attitudes of staff towards people in sheltered workshops and talked about, you know, that they aren't really people until they find a way to be useful to society. And useful to society means economically useful. Right, right. Like, I'm an activist. I don't get paid for it. I think that's useful to society. Absolutely. Most of people that are not into activism do not agree because I'm not getting paid for it. Right. So, so you, what I was saying is that, you know, there, there are ways to contribute to c- your community, which could be understood as work, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, for example, an activist. I think it is useful to society for me to look at policies, and look at the way certain structures work, or look at a proposed bill, or look at all kinds of things, right? And try and identify flaws that could be addressed, um, and then try to advocate to change those things and make things better. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's a usefulness to society. Oh, but yeah. because I'm not like a professional lobbyist or something, or a, prof- right. a professional policy analyst, um, there's no money in this. So a lot of people will regard this as not being useful. Or as a nice hobby. Like, oh, that's cute that you're contributing. Mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I do believe in the dignity of work. I just don't identify work with economic production necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that, you know, to, to have something that you want to do and then achieve it, I think there is, I think that's a really cool thing. And I think it, I also believe it's accessible to just about everybody in the world. If we're not defining it monetarily. But, you know, almost everybody can do that, including some of the most profoundly disabled people that exist. Um, but it may not be economically viable in a capitalist system. Yeah. And I think our conflation of, of value with economic productivity within a particular system that only accommodates certain people, I think, you know, that, and I don't even remember how we got onto this, but yeah. Yeah, although, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I think some types of work, yeah, can absolutely be good, you know, yeah, helpful, therapeutic even. Um, I think there is a place for, yeah, like you said, just wanting to do something, wanting to achieve something and doing it. Um, I just, sometimes I push back against that. Sometimes I think I like to beat this in my head a lot around the value of that and the value of this narrative of achievement or yeah, setting out to do something and tolerating the pain of it long enough to withstand it. I don't know. I think there's just so much pressure and there's such an idea that no matter what, even if you're disabled, even if you're um, very traumatized, whatever, that you should be doing that, that you should be finding things you can do and you can achieve. And is there room to rebel against that? Is there room to flat out refuse that? Or is that just mean? (laughs) I think we all do that. I think we all do that. I mean, sometimes what you're achieving is I'm making a meal that I'm going to enjoy and consume and get nutrients out of. And I think that's an achievement. Yeah. To to fix yourself a a cup of ramens. Right. Right, Or Uh, could even be like consuming. Some of the people I admire most, you know, uh, they do things like help somebody on with a jacket. Right. Mm -hmm. Which looks really minor. Um, It's necessary, but they just do it really well in a way that impresses the hell out of them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think think the issue is that we keep restricting what counts as an achievement. I think there's days it's just like not killing yourself is a major achievement. Yeah, that you know, yeah, and there's dignity in that, right? Um, Right. I'm. I don't think your achievement has got to be useful to anybody else or even noticed by anybody else. Right. Just getting through the day sometimes, and we all do it. Right. 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 Because if we don't, we're not here anymore. Yeah, I think if we can include more passive things in that if if yeah like if watching a movie is an achievement or something then that yeah i'd potentially be willing to get on board with that um yeah i just worry about the narrative that we like have to do or have to achieve anything like um i also think it comes from within us yeah we all have stuff we want right Mm -hmm. to get closer to this beautiful smell of a flower I mean, that's what some people do. 
Yeah, yeah. Get closer to it. Enjoy it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. That's an, you know, and and that's, it's it's not economically viable in the capitalist system, right? But it's you know I have something that I want, and I'm pursuing it. And even if I fail at it, the pursuit is still valuable, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. And again, almost every human being can pull this off if they have the proper supports. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, just to interact with the world, I guess. Yeah. And I think the key thing in that is that it doesn't necessarily have to be useful to anyone else. It's like you are allowed to be the person that it's useful for. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big... To do things that are, in fact, that happen to be useful to somebody else. Yeah. That society functions anyway. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't hurt me if I want to make, you know, this area, uh, this common area clean and neat. And you want to go right upon Right. Yeah. Way, but you know, but there's people who get satisfaction out of making a a common space clean and neat, and that, you know, enough people care about that. That, yeah, it's not like we're a subsistence society. Right. If the society were going to like, everybody starts dying if we're not all farming, then that's a different economic situation. Yeah. But the United States, we haven't been in that situation for a long time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, I don't know, maybe the the seduction of the story of Rudolph is that whatever, whatever Rudolph was already doing, whatever Rudolph already kind of was just naturally doing in his life is just, yeah, is suddenly useful and valuable and people like you for it. And my gosh, that, you know, like, like, like the poem example, like, Maybe you like writing poems. That doesn't, you know, that won't earn you any money, but who cares? And then suddenly somebody's like, oh my gosh, I need to publish these. Yeah. Like, isn't that, that's like a dream come true, right? It's like you're just doing your hobby or your whatever, and then suddenly, wow, people like me for it. And I think that's Rudolph too, right? It's just people notice him and they're like, oh gosh, he's useful and helpful. And, you know, step right up, please. Come over here, Rudolph. Worst, worst thing about this film, song, story, whatever. Because it's not true. Right? Yeah. And I'm speaking as somebody who spent most of his life trying to buy presence in other people's lives by being useful. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't actually work. You, you're tolerated as long as you're useful. You might even be respected at moments for being able to do something. Um, they might discover they like you, but there's certainly no guarantee. It doesn't tend to happen. But in this story, he's not even useful to the other reindeer, who are mostly his circle. I mean, Santa's a jerk, but Santa can largely be ignored to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. The people that he lives with, that he sees every day, they cannot be ignored. Yeah. Um, and he, so he, here, he, all of a sudden, something happens, and all these reindeer who are used to being celebrated, valorized, and they're so wonderful, they are not good enough. And so an outside authority figure comes in, puts him, calls him a leader, and again, he's a headlight, he's not a leader, but he calls him a leader, he puts him over everybody else, and then our theory is they're going to love him for this forever. (laughs) That's just not how it works. You know, they will be nice to him as long as Santa's there, because they need Santa, and Santa needs Rudolph. The minute Santa's back is turned, those those reindeer are going to clobber this building. Yes. And you grow up with this story, thinking, you know, if I'm just, like, 
the best one at some useful thing, people are going to like me and they don't like you for it because then they feel showed up. Right, right. Or, you know, maybe they do like the useful thing, but the useful thing you did only lasts so long and someone else comes along and does a more useful thing. And then you can either work harder and slave away and, you know, do something more useful than that and continue this rat race of trying to prove yourself the most useful or you can get tired and stop performing and then everyone (laughs) stops liking you and stops, you know, remembering the useful thing you did. But they won't even like you for the useful thing, right? I mean, suppose that because all of a sudden you're better than them at something, Mm. right? And it may not be something they wanted to do. It may not be something they were willing to put the effort into doing. Um, uh, that's that's very often the case. You know, you, you pick something specifically because nobody else wants to do it, but it's mm-hmm. got to get done. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, I'll do this thing and that'll be great. And then they're like, well, you know, you're so snobby. You're the teacher's pet. You're you know, whatever. They don't like you for it because you showed them up. You're better than them at something. They don't like that. I'm, a, I'm I was a little autistic kid, right? People around me made absolutely no sense. I figured out when I was like five, I need to study these people. So I did, and I read. You know, not starting at five, but I read biography, I read sociology, I read psychology, I read, I mean, everything I could find to help me understand the people around me. And I looked to their popular culture for hints. So I'm looking to things like Rudolph, like, tell me about the psychology of the people I'm trying to make my life among. And Rudolph, I grew up with a song, not the movie, but Mm -hmm. Rudolph tells me the way to be liked and accepted by your peers is to impress an authority figure. Yeah. And, you know, then you get called teacher's pet and they throw chalk at you and, and you know, beat you up in the bathrooms. Right, right. It's a, it's a lie. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is where the rant on Facebook came from. Yeah. Because every Christmas we come around and we tell this little lie. It's, it's yeah. And Christmas is, of course, full of lies from the very first one that there is this person who will give you gifts just for being you although secretly it turns out he's evaluating you all year long right <laughs> see if you deserve the gifts um yeah i think is, yeah, it's horrible yeah i think the whole myth of santa is just horrible yeah it's this like it's again this like very horrible way to teach children how conditionally we love them and how they're so great and they're going to get all these gifts, but you better do everything I expect you to do and you better be the person I want you to be and you don't have any choice in this. And yeah, as long it's, as it's, you say yes to everything, you'll get the gifts. Yeah, it's not teaching, it's controlling. Yes. <laughs> uh, We're ramping it up now. Santa now sends his little plastic spies called Elf on the Shelf. Oh my gosh, those things are so... Yes. That's so freaking creepy. Like, he used to just spy on you by remote, but now, like, he makes it very clear what he's doing. That's and so it, creepy. Yeah, and I don't know if you guys are aware, there's a there's now a, a, an app that you can oh, get yeah. on your phone where you can type in your kid's name and their address and what they did, right? Like, oh, he's being, he kicked the dog or whatever, and it'll simulate a phone call from Santa, like, it'll play Jingle Bells, and it'll, like fill up your whole screen, and then you press the green button, it'll go, oh, ho, ho, this is Santa just checking in on you. I've heard you've been a very bad boy, Timmy. And, like, like it, it just, it, again, just it's so psychological awful. horror. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I heard this from another podcast where they're describing, like, 
like the call comes in and the kid just like the kid no it was the, the kid like tripped and like broke something and then immediately like looks at the phone with the just like goes white as a sheet and is like staring at the phone waiting for the phone call from Santa to come in like what are we doing to our kids you guys like what yeah, the economic message in all of this mm-hmm. because you know we know where Santa's actually getting his funding it's not actually Medicaid <laughs> parents right which means that the more money not even the more money you earn but the more money that people that gave birth to you earn or that are raising you earn or that love you earn the more you apparently deserve according to I used to um I still do it sometimes but I, I used to be in a position to do it much more is participate in buying gifts to donate to people who would give gifts to children yeah and it was the most stressful thing ever because you know you'd get some kid and this tiny little description of them and then all of a sudden, you know, you know, you're a major source of their gifts for Christmas, and you don't even know this person. Yeah. You know? I mean, I've bought clothes for people that I don't know what they like to wear. I don't know what anybody likes to wear. That, I mean, I dress horrible. That's always what strikes me with those things. Is just you, you know, that kid's opening the box and going, "Oh, good, purple shirts. Always wanted a purple shirt. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's just." Uh, it's so impersonal and disconnected. Yeah, it just—it's—it's—I don't—I the whole thing is just—it's a mess because it reinforces and it's—it's it's, again, it's not even what you earn, which would be bad enough, because we do not all have the same opportunities to earn, right? But yeah. It's—it's it's the people you were like landed with, totally through no, no action of your own, how right. much they earn. That's how—that's what determines your work at Christmas. Yeah, not to mention how the idea of what's constituted as nice and what's constituted as naughty, who gets on the oh, good gosh. list and who gets on the bad list. That's all very much about who's going to be a good little worker in the future, who's going to make money and carry mm-hmm. on the ideals of the ruling class, and who's not. If you act up in school, if you're getting bad grades, you know, we need to put you on the naughty list. We need to let you know that you're not performing well because you're not useful to us. You're not going to be part of this ruling class. You you better get your act together. So you mentioned Disability Employment Month. How else do you think this story gets told to disabled people? Like, in what ways, not just Rudolph itself, but in what ways is this told that if you're disabled, it's okay if you're useful or people will love you if you're useful? Well, I think this kind of inverts it a little bit, but there's also this thing about dependency. Mm-hmm. And there's really, in disability, there's two understandings of independence, right? There's the one that you hear a lot in the DD community and in the um, in, in the madness and recovery communities and so forth, which is that independence is doing stuff without help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, then over in the independent living movement, which was formed largely by people with physical disabilities, and it's supposed to be cross-disability now, but it varies on that. Yeah. Um, they understand independence as freedom from influence from outside from outside coercion. So to live independently, if you are autistic or have an intellectual disability, means nobody's helping you. You're figuring it out on your own. Mm-hmm. So to, in order to live independently, you need to be able to do all this. You need to be able to balance the budget. You need to be able to go to the supermarket. You need to be able to call nine one one. That's what it takes. Uh, to live independently if you are physically disabled and plugged into this other network, uh, which most people push on, uh, it means to 
have access to services that you control. So you may need help to get out of bed, to go to the bathroom, to shower, to shave, to get your breakfast, to eat your breakfast, to go back to the bathroom, uh, put your clothes on, and get on the bus in the morning. But if you are able to tell somebody, now we're going to do this, and and they do it for you, that's a defense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different understanding. Um, But there's real real pressure in many cases to be as little of a quote burden unquote on other people as possible so you want to get by with the cheapest stuff and you want to use the least help and and of course there are consequences to this there are yeah i mean i can do certain things for myself with great difficulty Mm -hmm. um it can take me a couple hours to get dressed i don't get dressed every day i sleep in my clothes I change my clothes every couple of days because it takes several hours to get dressed. Yeah. And I only have so much stamina and that's a sizable chunk of what I can do for the day. And I just don't care that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow it would be worse for the world if somebody came in and helped me get dressed. And then I took all that stamina uh, and the fact that I'm now, you know, clean and neat, which I don't always pull off um, and went out and did something in the world. I think that it could even be economically viable. Right? right? Right. I could hold a job if I spent less time just trying to get through the mechanics of eating every day and wearing clothes. Right. Which are, are necessary things to do. I live in Chicago. You have to wear clothes. It gets cold. Um, you have to eat. There's just, there's no choice about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. I could do so much more if I did not have to worry about this stuff. But somehow it is considered to be more of a burden on society for me to be that level of functional uh, than it is for me to just, like, sit here at home and wonder, am I going to eat today? Right. Right. And again, that's not so much usefulness as as lack of distraction from what everybody else wants to do. And so much of it is also related to, you know, uh, to the way we accommodate some people and not others. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I believe both of you walk. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we want to go to a building, for example, the building may allow you to go in the front, but not me. Yeah. Right, right. Or it are, yeah. It are. You conceive of that as I have this deficiency that you don't have that makes me unable to access buildings. But there's nothing inherent about building a building that requires steps. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This is about you getting accommodated and not me in this one sense. Or uh, I may be able to do something that you can't do, right? That society will give you stuff because you can do it. Right. Um, for you to go shopping you need shoes mm-hmm. well shoes are reasonably affordable um and i realize increasingly large numbers of people can't afford them anyway but i mean they're reasonably affordable and you can buy them pretty much anywhere there's people that can fit you for shoes get you an appropriate pair of shoes whatever um for me to go shopping i need a wheelchair well that can take eight months and that's if you've got a good doctor and a good um, rehab clinic and, and good insurance and all kinds of stuff. That can mm-hmm. take eight, eight months to get that. It's much easier to just get shoes. Yeah. And yeah, to some extent, part of that is because I need technology that, that does need to be somewhat individually fitted. There's no way around that. But a lot of it, yeah, it could be done so much faster because society is set up so that you have what you need to go to the store and I don't. Right. right. Yeah, the, uh, the last apartment we lived in, it was they they put the garage on the on the ground floor and then had the apartments like lofted above it and the only way up was the set of stairs but it wasn't just stairs they were like pebbly stairs that like 
they were like really rough and textured and yeah we have a friend in a wheelchair and we didn't even like think about that until like he was gonna come over and we're just looking around like crap <laughs> yeah it was yeah it was just it was such a pain and it didn't have to be <laughs> before thanksgiving i was in a hospital Hospital does not apparently have any wheelchair accessible bathrooms for patients. They do have them for staff. What? Uh, wow. After 12 hours of fighting, I finally got access to that. Right? What? So they ended up putting me in an ICU step down because it had the closest thing possible, according to them. It was completely unusable. And this could so easily have been done, right? The grab bar was angled wrong. They could so easily have made this accessible, but yeah. they didn't. Um, so then they got furious because here I am in this ICU step down when I clearly didn't need to be. And it's true, I did not need to be in ICU step down for any reason other than I was on diuretics and you just can't be in a hospital for three days with no access to a toilet and be on diuretics. <laughs> can't be done. Um, Cause That's... there's no other way for me to pee short of a catheter, which they don't want to do for health reasons. Yeah. Um, which I'm not too thrilled with like invasive medical procedures just cause they didn't bother to comply with the federal law. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, they're withholding drugs and they're withholding food and all kinds of stuff to punish me for being such a brat as to waste their time on my wow. step-down unit, um, which is totally, totally not my fault because they're seeing this as like a deficiency in me that I could just remedy by somehow figuring out how to use a toilet that I can't get to. And um, I'm seeing this, of course, as a deficiency in them. Right. Um, that's, that's a whole horror movie in its own right. Like yeah. that. Oh, you want to get really horrible? Oh. Um, Max Benson, out in California, uh, just died in restraints, uh, and they didn't follow the the plan. And I mean, I don't like the plan to begin with because restraint is abusive and whatever, um, and it's basically never necessary. But this was something that they did to him. Um, but he really did not fit in, and by all accounts, he was a great kid. I mean. I'm not saying uh, if he was not a great kid, he would deserve to die in restraints. But, you know, I mean, he was a problem for other people as they conceived of it. And, you know, the sheriff is saying, well, you know, it's not really a crime. They, they meant well and whatever. They performed a restraint that was a violation of state regulations because everything that happened was planned for in the behavior plan, which, again, I don't like the behavior plan, but... At least it won't kill you. They also don't follow it. They went to prone restraint. Right. Instead. And held him down for an hour. Wow. And, uh, and, and when he said, when he stopped moving, they, they said, you know, quit pl pretending you're asleep. Oh instead of checking to see if he had stopped moving. Um, you know, so when we get these messages all the time that you, you cannot be a problem for other people. And it's a lot more than just not being in the reindeer games. In some ways, because you can die. Yeah. But on the other hand, ostracism is like one of the most painful experiences human beings can experience. Yes. Absolutely. If you look at the research, it's really a horrible thing to do to somebody. Um, Rudolph gets banished, which realistically, if you are banished above the Arctic Circle when you are a child. That's a death sentence. Yeah, it is. You're not going to find a friendly elf and, and sad toys. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're gonna freeze to death. Yeah. You're gonna freeze to death very fast. Um, 
you know, so I mean, really horrible, horrible, horrible stuff can happen. And and what's the crime? He didn't fit in, and he didn't even fit in for like a reason that was in any way related to. I mean, you can you can kind of understand it in in a society where um, there's so much scarcity that people that don't fit in can potentially jeopardize other people's lives. Or if like his nose was drawing in the abominable snowman. I don't know, maybe like if he's endangering everyone else, but even then, I don't know, even then I think he would be more, I don't know. I don't understand why uh, that would legitimately upset people. Yeah, yeah. This guy looked funny to them. That's all he ever did. Yeah. And and they were willing to kill him for it. Yeah. And, And all he wants is to go back and make them happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is presented as a story of Rudolph triumphing. I mean, really, Rudolph triumphing would have been, screw all y'all, I'm going somewhere else. Yeah. yeah or I'm going to go back and I'm going to start a home for, you know, abused reindeer um, where we just celebrate the hell out of each other and screw all y'all. Yes. Oh my gosh! Yeah, or I'm if, gonna murder people with axes. I'm also okay with that. For the <laughs> making friends with the abominable snowman and raiding Santa's town. Hell yes! <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> you know the the way to be special is to persuade your abusers not to do it anymore. Right, that's the message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the message That's the right way to be special. And, and the message is that that's what will happen. Like, I, I feel like, yeah, as a kid, I was told this over and over and over again. Um, I don't know, Cal, if you were told this, um, but I kept being told over and over, um, you're smarter than everyone else. One day, everyone will be working for you. And then oh, they'll geez. see that yeah horrible and then and then they'll see that they were wrong and then they'll want to <laughs> apologize and then they'll come running back and i bought that like hook line and sinker i really bought that and the reality is like i don't know like even if that does somehow happen even if you do accomplish great things and people come running back like they're still not doing that because of you and because of who you are. They're just doing that because of like surface level accomplishments or achievements. Or because they have to, they have to suck up to you because you own them. Yeah, that's you, yeah. And it's because they're working for you. It's literally just, now you have the power to screw them over. So they have to suck up to you the way you had to suck up to them. Right. Right. And they, they, that's not, it's a better world for you, but it's not a better world. Right, and they haven't learned anything. They're not, yeah, just like we kind of said, they're not going to treat the person with the green nose better or whatever. They're not, they haven't learned anything about how to treat those who are different. They're just like, oh, crap, this person actually wasn't so beneath us after all. I guess since they're above us, we should treat them like other people who are above us. Oh. Still with this concept of people who are beneath us and people who are above us, like that hierarchy still exists. You've just moved in it. That's, and that's a great way to put it. They give you to get there doesn't actually work. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, it's it's just horrible stuff on top of horrible stuff on top of lies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's very heartwarming, and it all makes us feel happy and friendly and and loving and nostalgic. And I mean, I don't get it. Yeah. So I I have a theory. I have at least a little bit of a theory, which is that like 
as I was watching the movie, I found myself like, how do you say, like empathetically reacting with Santa. Like he winks at camera at one point and I caught myself like reflexively like smiling and winking back and I'm like, oh no, he's got me. Like, I think that's actually, like, an underrated, like, part of this is that, like, Santa, they, they got, like, a great, I don't know, little animatronic Santa, and they got, like, a great voice actor. Like, he's just so freaking charming. Like, he just, he, he sucked me in. Like, I went into this, I'm, like, ready to take notes on how awful Santa is, and I'm still smiling and winking with him, and I'm just like, crap. He's good. What did you like about him? I don't know. Just just that he does come off as very warm and charming. And, you know, and I think, we, you know, we are programmed to, you know, like Santa. And Santa's a good guy or whatever. Like, yeah. we're primed for that already. But and he is just so, like, warm and friendly. Oh, I'm so worried about those kids. They were so good this year. Yeah. Right? Like, he's just, he, he, he comes off on the surface like he cares. Yeah, he does. Well, you know. It's interesting, this story is not even told from Rudolph's perspective. It's that snowman, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, so it's people that, like you, are telling the story. And, and instinctively, if people treat you like they like you, you tend to treat them like you like them back. And yeah. if you treat people like you like them, um, and you're not being completely manipulative, uh, or, sorry, dishonest. Manipulative is a word that's so loaded. But if you're not being completely dishonest in that... And consciously dishonest. You tend to like them because you tend to assume, like, why would I be so nice to somebody if they weren't nice? Right. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I, mean, I read this one piece of advice, and it's actually really good advice. You know, if you are trying to like, work with people, one of the most powerful things you can do is when you go to talk to them, you turn your phone off and you put it in your pocket, and you do not look at it again until the conversation is mm -hmm, over. Mm -hmm. Because it makes people feel like, they have your undivided attention if you're not looking at your phone all the time. And if you're looking right. at your phone, it makes them feel like, yeah, they've got more important things to do than me. Right. Mm -hmm. if, if you signal to somebody that you like them, that's powerful. That is yeah. really powerful. And even if it's completely dishonest, like, you know, it's, there's nothing intrinsic about not having an urgent phone call come in or not thinking you might have one. That means you like somebody. But that's how we talk. Right. right. Or... or so, Santa likes you. He, he likes you, Andy. He thinks you're a great guy. He winks at you. You know, of course you're going to like you back. And then you're going to kind of understand, you know, why he's mean to this horrible reindeer that's just ruining everything by not fit. Oh, he, he explicitly, like, blames Rudolph for everything. Like, Rudolph's dad goes out to go find him, and, and Santa's like, Oh, I don't know, Rudolph. He went off after you, and I'm just so worried. Without him, I don't know how we're going to get the sleigh off the ground and bring all the presents to all the children. And, like, guilts Rudolph into going back out to look for his abusive father. Like, this is your fault, Rudolph. There's going to be a lot of starving, you know, a lot of sad kids in the world if you don't go solve this problem that we... And, like... Yeah. Ah. <laughs> but it is. It's... It's... it's 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 not told from Rudolph's perspective. It's Santa and that snowman going like, oh, well, Christmas had to go off without a hitch. And Santa, you know, like it, it's from their perspective. Like all they see is that they've got a problem and someone else needs to go fix it. And and, and the problem starts with Rudolph. I mean, and, and you look at that in the coverage of, of the Max Benson case too, right? So, and then Max Benson, you know, posed a threat. Well, that's like, well, you, I mean, that, that didn't just happen out of the blue. Right. It never happens out of the blue. Rudolph doesn't leave out of the blue. 
Yeah. Out of the blue, this out of the blue, that it does stuff for reasons. Like, yes. yes, they don't really matter to anybody, but we all care. Yeah, that's such a thing in these like classic like I don't know this, this isn't a Disney movie but like classic like children's entertainment or whatever is like the, the parents are mean you know quote unquote oh you know mean whatever the, the parents are I guess you know, I guess firm but fair to the, the whatever the kid and then the kid is rebellious because I don't know kids are like that sometimes they just they just want to go run away sometimes and we'll never understand why that's the narrative that's yeah. the narrative yeah that's what the movie wants you to think is just oh, kids are rebellious like that like no almost all of these stories start with like abusive parents and then like kids like running away for their own like sanity and safety but then it's somehow their fault when things go wrong right and i think disabled people get that too you know I mean, I get, I get a lot of flag for not participating in events. I'm like, it is not accessible. I can't be in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, have the meeting where I can go, and I'll go. Oh, but you're not even there. Well, I'm not there because I can't be in the room. Um, right. Or, or, and this is much closer to Rudolph. I did an event, a day and a half event, um, including spending the night in a hotel with a bunch of people. Uh, and, you know, we went on a train somewhere. Everybody else sat together. I was put in a different car. Um... We got there. We did what we were supposed to do. Um, everybody else did it together, and I sort of stood or sat 12 feet off the side, not really understanding, having asked, you know, this is the prep I need, and yeah, 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 we'll try. So then we did this other thing with other people, and I was social and bubbly and whatever. Uh, then we went to dinner. One person spoke to me the entire dinner. Then we went back to the hotel. Uh, we were supposed to be multiples in a room. I had requested to have a shared room for access reasons. I was put in a room by myself. And these are these enormous rooms. Like, this room is bigger than my apartment, where I live with another person and two dogs. There was room for somebody else. Um, next morning, I get up, I go down to breakfast. I'm like, well, you can't sit with us because there's not enough room. Um, we go back to the train, and they put me in a car by myself. So at this point, I largely stopped participating with these people in most things. Yeah. And all, it's like, well, you know, if you're not even going to try, like, okay, yeah, but I did try. Yeah. Excuse you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and in, in fact, I even complained about this. And I said, oh, come on, you're so stressful. I mean, yes, I, I do understand it is stressful to be told that your employees are doing this to people and it upsets them. Yeah. yeah. I'm not the only one being stressful here. Right, right. I mean, it's just—it's such a burden to deal with this, Cal. And so, yeah, I did. I I walked away, rolled away, and and then it's like, oh, Jesus, Cal doesn't even try. Well, you know, we had at this point been doing stuff together for more than a year. This is how far we got, and I was just tired of it. Yeah. Um, but it begins with what Rudolph does wrong. Right. It's Mm -hmm. not these people horrible to him his entire freaking life. Why wouldn't he go, you know, give up on them? He didn't try. Right, right, uh, right. And, and so there's, the contact, context is so lacking. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have friends with anxiety, right? They don't show up at events a lot. Mm-hmm. And it can be annoying because you want them there, right? And then they're not there and think, well, this is very annoying. Um, but there's a context to it. It's not like they're saying, huh, everybody wants me at this event. I'm just going to not show up. <laughs> it's this has been set up in such a way or my life is going in such a way or whatever is happening with them 
I really can't cope with it. Right. I'm going to do what I need to do. Right. And so you can sit there and say, I wanted them here. They're not here. They're being annoying. Or you can say something, whether I even know what it is or not, is going on, and they can't be here. And that may also be annoying, but it's not them being annoying, right? Yeah. You can be annoyed at the situation of somebody experiencing overwhelming anxiety without blaming them. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. This is reminding me so much of, like, my experience with leftist or, I guess, progressive politics. I'm not sure if it's true leftism, if it's Bernie Sanders, but um, I used to be, like, pretty involved organizing for Bernie Sanders or just sort of progressive politics, and that's something that I strongly believe in still. I believe that people deserve as many resources as possible. Um, there should be a wide social safety net, that healthcare is a human right, you know, all of the stuff that I think basically decent human beings believe um, that people deserve. I, my goal is universal basic income. But yeah, so I, I really tried to get involved in kind of political organizing. Um, I was really heavily involved in Bernie Sanders because he was Bernie Sanders organizing during the primaries of 2016 because... Um, he was such a kind of left-leaning or progressive-leaning political candidate. Uh, but when I wanted to talk about disability issues, and namely the issue of forced psychiatric treatment and voluntary commitment, and just the way that people with psychiatric diagnoses are treated in general, uh, I was basically told my issue didn't matter. I sounded like I had conspiracy theories. I sounded like I was anti-science because I was criticizing psychiatry. I sounded like I was anti-meds. I was almost told basically that I was kind of embarrassing to be around or I was bringing the whole party down by, or the whole like organizing group down by talking about this and making them look bad. Uh, And so, yeah, eventually I just distanced myself. (laughs) I just sort of left. I couldn't really handle it because I, I was told that my issues didn't matter. And yeah, and people would say just all sorts of horrible microaggressions. They would talk about Donald Trump being mentally ill and Donald Trump being an idiot and fat and laugh about him. And also Hillary, oh, she fainted. She's so terrible. That would make her a terrible president, not because of her policies or anything, but because she fainted one time. Oh, and God forbid, she's pro-vaccine too. And (laughs) so I, I really couldn't get on board. I really felt just so alienated and ostracized. And the response that I kept being told when I would bring this up with people was, well, you just have to keep organizing. You just have to stick with us and help us out with our causes. And if we see how much you're helping us, then one day, you know, we'll help you out with yours. And you just have to keep organizing with us. And as we get to know you and as you basically prove your worth to us, then, you know, your your turn will come. You have to wait your turn. Um, now, I, of course, recognize the importance of trying to show solidarity with progressive-leaning politics, especially with someone like Trump in power. I really, really respect all the disabled activists who have done work organizing for Democratic candidates or progressive candidates to win votes. That's so important, but it's just incredibly difficult for me and, and painful because of 
I, I was like very immersed in that world. And yet I'm constantly blamed for distancing myself and for refusing to buy this idea that I have to prove my worth in order to somehow, you know, get my issues recognized as well. I think we, we don't understand solidarity and, and I'm talking literally, we, I mean, usually when I say we in this conversation, I've been meaning our society. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in left-leaning politics, we don't understand solidarity as going both ways. Right. 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 Um, you know, George H.W. Bush recently died, as you mm -hmm. no doubt noticed. Mm -hmm. um, and, okay, I'm queer, mm -hmm. and I am of an age where I was first getting aware of, of other people and starting to work with other people and, and do getting into, into politics. I mean, I was or I was into politics at 14, but then I got institutionalized and whatever. So I'm coming out and I'm, I'm active at this point in queer circles and it's the middle of the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've seen a number of these just tributes to Bush and okay, he did good stuff. He did. He signed the ADA. Yeah. As a disabled person, that's not lost on me. That is right. not remotely lost on me. That was a big, good thing he did for our community. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm absolutely up for celebrating that, that he did. But we go farther. He's a friend to all disabled people. Well, you know, people with HIV, yeah. at least, certainly people with AIDS, are disabled as well. Absolutely. And I think possibly letting tens of thousands of them die without trying to save them does not constitute being a friend to them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, people with crack addictions are disabled. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I think possibly destroying entire communities by throwing disabled people into prison for being disabled mm -hmm. um, incredibly punitively does not constitute being a friend of them. No. no. So we, we're seeing these tributes about, oh, you know, George Bush, he was this great man, he was a wonderful with disabilities, he was good and gentle and whatever. Well, he, he helped mm -hmm. write a bill that authorized the forcible and often deceptive sterilization of a great many Native American women. Whoa. Uh, that's not my definition of good and gentle. No. It's just not. Um, and the AIDS epidemic was, I think it classifies as genocide or, you know, it, it's like it was an active, it was an active choice by the government to let a group of people, a marginalized group of people die. And the, the bill was specifically so that poor people and people of color and people that were mm -hmm. unproductive would not reproduce at the same yeah. rate as rich white people. I mean, it's absolutely just that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and so, and, and our leaders, some of some are not all of our leaders, we got some great leaders. Mm -hmm. Some of our leaders are out there calling for the disability community to get on board and start supporting these tributes to Bush. Right. And I'm just sitting there feeling more and more and more alienated. It's like, he did some great stuff. He did some great. He did some legitimately great stuff. I'm not. I'm not saying we didn't. I'm not saying we don't talk about it. I'm not saying we don't celebrate. It. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, you know, Native American women, black crack addicts, um, gay people with AIDS are also part of our community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 they're at least intersected. And in some mm -hmm. cases. Every single one of them is one of our communities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, eugenics is absolutely an issue that affects our community, and and sterilizing people is, for any reason other than their complete desire to be sterilized, uh, is eugenics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you do it to, to stop them from procreating because you don't want their babies in the world, um, and 
you know, I, I, I don't have that level of solidarity with our leaders. You know, you want my solidarity. And to come out and say, this bill did a great thing for rich white wheelchair users. <laughs> you know, and now we're going to say this guy's a saint. I expect you to also look at, you know, the amazing things he did for the gay community, which lost basically a generation of gay men. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, we would have lost a lot of them even if we had tried to save them because science is not immediate. Yeah, but dying... Yeah, and also dying in a hospital with comfort, with doctors who are doing something and trying to save you and at least making your death more comfortable and humane is very, very incredibly different than dying in a way that you're, no one's even trying to save you. Like, that's murder versus... And I, mean, I, remember, yeah, yeah. I remember these kids, because I was a youth group at the time, right? They're not getting told use a condom in school. Like right, we right. know use a condom because literally at this point in the world save your life yeah, yeah, yeah. particularly if you're a gay male yeah right? yeah um and they're being told yeah you know just we're not going to give you accurate information you know we're going to tell you don't share share your drinks with somebody mm -hmm. but sharing oh. your drink is perfectly safe right, yeah right, 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 right. what <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that's ridiculous. ridiculous so and, and i mean again we're talking children here we're okay with letting them die if they love the wrong kind of people or if, you know, they just happen to get caught in the crossfire because it wasn't all gay people getting HIV at that point. Right. right. We were happy to let Ryan White be cast out of society. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if, if the whole point was that gay people are evil, that Ryan White wasn't gay. Right. Um, right. And I'm certainly not conceding that we're evil. Yeah. But, you know, this and, and this, this idea of solidarity. Rudolph is expected to be sol ha have solidarity to Santa, but Santa's not expected to have solidarity with Rudolph. Yes, yes exactly. I did want to go back quickly to the ADA um, and how that kind of intersects with Rudolph. I, mm. I don't know tons of history about the ADA, but I do wonder how that ends up sometimes like supporting some pretty conservative interests. This idea that if, I mean, I think it's good, of course, it's positive for workplaces to accommodate disabled people. But I also think there's this idea that, yeah, like disabled people can be working and useful to society just like you or me if we just require the right amount of accommodations. Um, the, ADA, first, the ADA has not got as much in terms of workplace accommodation. Right, right. I mean, our, our unemployment rate's about the same. Right, right, right. All right. But I mean, that, I think that was a deliberate strategy. You know, you look at people like Evan Kemp and Justin Dart, and these are these are wealthy men, and they're good men, all right. I mean, I'm not knocking Evan and Justin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, but yeah, a big part of the selling point with Bush was we're not asking for handouts; we're asking for a chance to work and contribute. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And that was a that was a big part of the selling point. You know, even if you look at some of the tributes we've just seen to Bush, it's and then he understood that what we really want is to work and contribute. Right. And yes, a lot of us do actually want these things. A lot of us do want the same kind of lifestyles as everybody else, and that includes having a job, going to work, getting a paycheck, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Right? Literally, a lot of us want that. Yeah. Um, but, and then if you look at how the ADA plays out, right? I mean, as a wheelchair user now, I'm supposed to be able to get into workplaces. It doesn't actually work that way, but I'm, I'm supposed to be able to, right? Yeah. yeah. As an autistic person, Negotiating access is just, even at the best of times, supposed to be a bugbear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, 
nothing is expected to already be in place for me. It's got to be negotiated one at a time. It's got I've got to prove that I need it, right? And it's I mean, this is actually a big part of why I don't work. My last job, I was in political organizing in the disability community. Mm-hmm. And it was just <laughs> sort trying to sort out the accommodations so that literally I could tell who was talking to me, mm-hmm. which is a part of my job. You know, I asked for people to either either wear name tags or identify themselves to me when they spoke to me mm-hmm. because I'm face blind. Yeah, no, yeah. couldn't do that. Wow. Could not do that. Wow. I'm still having that problem now, right? I go into the disability community, I say, I'm face blind. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, you could figure out who I was if you wanted to. So uh. I'm not going to tell you that I'm in the room, even if I think you may want to talk to me. Oh, You're my not God. Out how to approach me. Oh, my God. Um, or I needed, we had lunch, right? We, every day we had lunch. And we would send a PA out to a restaurant to pick up lunch for us. We'd make orders. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, I cannot hold the menu in my head. Give me a written menu. Show me a photograph of the menu on the wall of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Write down what the options are. I don't know, something like that, right? Now, they had people whose entire job was to provide disability accommodations. But because this was an autism accommodation, they wouldn't let me use the right. PAs. Right. Right. Even when the PAs had literally nothing else to be doing. Right. Because those were there for the physically disabled people. If I needed to be put on a toilet, which I did not need at that time, a PA would help me with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if I needed help, so if I need literally 20 minutes of help today so that I can have lunch every day for the rest of my employment, mm-hmm. can't do that. That's too much work. Wow. Um, so the ADA has, and it's, I mean, it's an amazing law. It has got us lots of good things, and laws are never perfect, and in, in a bipartisan world, you've got to appeal to people whose values you may not like. And, I mean, I, I get it. I completely get it. Yeah. yeah. But the ADA is not the magical, mystical, it made everything better that some people seem to think it is. And 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 it was an immense step forward. All right. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just saying it didn't get us all the way. Legislation never will. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a big thing is that legislation just, just yeah, doesn't, it, is, it doesn't ever, yeah, get us all the way. Um, but yeah, again, I, I do think the ADA has this narrative behind it of like, we can be useful, we can prove ourselves useful. Um, Jasper Puar talks about like homo-nationalism, um, kind of this idea of, um, it's kind of this Dan Savage, it gets better narrative of gay basically white gay men saying yeah like it's okay to be gay because you can get a job and you can become a homeowner and you can get married and have all the things straight people have and still be really rich but just gay little minor difference and she kind of talks about the ada i think using that type of language of i think she calls it able nationalism but i forget but basically saying, yeah, disabled people who are saying, yeah, we can still be white and rich and have privilege and be disabled and that's okay. And as long as we're useful to the labor force, it's fine. Well, we, we actually have in, in, incorporated that too. I don't know if you're familiar with Live On. No, no I, don't I don't think, think so. So. No. so Live On is a movement um, or a project, or I mean, I don't know what the correct word is. Um, and it's run by some people who really, really, really want to do good things. Mm-hmm. And they looked at the fact that, that, you know, 
people tend to come into the disability community traumatically, mm-hmm. or they tend to be raised disabled with really bad attitudes towards it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so uh, there's a great deal of despair, and you know, I will never have a good life and whatever. Yeah. yeah. So as far as, as as I understand it, and I'm not deeply involved in the project, um, I'm not. I, I, I know very little about it, uh, but I did, did interview some of them at one point. Um, they they looked at it gets better, and incorporated that model. And so it's a lot about people saying, yeah, you know, this is how my life is. This is how I live on. This is how disability pride and has affected me, and how I have a good life and all this stuff. And I always struggle with this because I can't tell if this is just me. I'm perverse in many ways. I don't fit in in many ways. So if I don't like something, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It could just be me, right? Yeah. But I find this really depressing because the, the message is, you know, just hang in there and, you know, you'll be welcomed by the community and all these good things will happen to you. And that's true enough, I think, for the people that participate in this project. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 51 years old. I've been in disability politics since the mid-90s. I have one local press, and that's recent. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't have an income because I can't get, haven't figured out how to get sports yet to even apply for SSI. Um, you know, I mean, I'm I've got a roof over my head, I've got food in my belly, I've got I've got dogs, I've got. I mean, I'm not saying I have a horrible life, mm-hmm. but a lot of these things that are pretty much necessary for the life that I would like to have. I don't have them. I don't see any prospect of getting them. Um, or maybe in some cases I'm starting to get a sense of that. But that's only really because I've been lucky. I met a lot of really yeah. good people at the national level um, who are supporting me, which again, not everybody has access to. Right. I live in a, in a part of Chicago where there's a, this fairly wealthy white neighborhood right next to poorer black neighborhoods. I'm like kind of near a line. Um, in my neighborhood, there's a whole lot of disabled people, particularly if you include post-traumatic stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're at least 50% disabled if you include post-trauma um, in the larger neighborhood. No, not, not the white section, but the whole section, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of these people are really struggling. And, you know, it's not like the trauma is going to go away. It's Chicago. We, this year, had somebody get shot by police for, you know, appearing like he might have possibly been carrying a gun, which he wasn't. Um, he was you know, he was a business owner. He actually did everything that they say will get you acceptance in this society, and they shot him and killed him. Um, we have plenty of trauma going on down here in my neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, much of it does not affect me nearly as much as many of my neighbors. Are we really going to tell these people, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to get right. better. Right. For some of them, it will. And that's great. And they need to hear that. But it's also, every time I see one of these things, I'm just like, not for me, it's not. Yeah. yeah. It, and that just makes me feel worse. Right, right. So depressing. That is. I think it also, like, a lot of, I don't know about Live On, but I think... With the It Gets Better campaign, it's so individualizing. Like, it's it doesn't say any... It's not really about it gets better because, you know, we're organizing to counter queer antagonism or things like that. It's more just like you can still get a job and you can still just be like everyone else. I mean, it's, it's just very, like, it puts all the responsibility on the individual to 
basically overcome their circumstances and um yeah I don't know that's to me I just feel like rather that's something that I do think matters right like all right way way back when when I first got started in this stuff I got online is what happened and then I got onto a listserv that discussed autism Mm -hmm. and fairly quickly I managed to get myself into a fight over institutionalization some Mm -hmm. guys saying you know oh there's these people and their functioning level is breathing and you know they need to be institutionalized and I'm out there saying nobody needs that. Nobody needs to be institutionalized. We can get everybody out. We can provide them good lives in the community. Yeah. Every yeah. single person. And here's how you do it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, no, you just don't understand. Like, I've been institutionalized. I work in the field. I understand. Um, so we're going back and forth. And I convinced absolutely nobody. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a similar fight over filicide, which, again, did not convince anybody. Um, but I know a younger activist, right, who was being institutionalized for the first time in psych hospitals right about that time. Mm-hmm. went through hell. I mean, I went through hell. This person went through worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, years later, gets on the internet, finds the old blogs of this listserv, and discovers that somebody has was, at the moment she was being institutionalized, somebody was fighting and saying, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that apparently made a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Not just hang in there, you know, let them do whatever they want to you, it'll get better. But, you know, okay, it sucks. It absolutely sucks what happened to you, but you didn't deserve it. Yes. There's people that care about that and are trying to make a difference. Yes, 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 yes. absolutely. Failed miserably, but try. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's a huge difference between those two. I think it gets better is very empty versus, like, I'm trying to do something. I at least recognize that this is wrong. That's, that's like, um, actually meaningful. I mean, that's. I, mean, I never met Justin Dart, right? Mm-hmm. But he remains a figure that I absolutely love because Justin could get in front of a crowd and say justice for all, freedom for all, and it just it sounds like bumper stickers when I say it, right? But I believed in what he said. Mm-hmm. I mean, I believe here's this guy. He's fighting for me, mm-hmm. right? And well, he might have hated me if he told me. I mean, a lot of people do, uh, <laughs> but. You know, he matters to me in a way that very few people do. Mm-hmm. And he also gives me like a role model because I want to live up to that vision that he inspired me to believe in. That so many of our leaders just do not inspire me to believe in. Yeah. yeah. So. Well. We absolutely suck at heartwarming Christmas stories. I know, right? Like, <laughs> this is going to go out on Christmas Eve, and I'm just picturing all the people, like, curling up with their loved ones. They've got the tree. They've got a, they've got a nice little fire, and they're like, let's hear about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> and instead, they get... <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the AIDS crisis is genocide. <laughs> they're just like, oh, oh, honey. <laughs> <laughs> but again, to some people, that might bring real actual comfort. That might be worth way more than just like a regular empty kind of devoid of meaning Christmas story. So, oh, it's not devoid of meaning. It's it's just filled with all sorts of meaning that is like capital bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the people that we like, hopefully, they'll like this. 
<laughs> yeah. I, I think the people already in the dystopian mindset will probably like it. I think the people that are going, oh, Rudolph, isn't that wonderful? I think, yeah, this is possibly not the podcast that will make their night. Yeah. Hopefully, we've kind of weeded out those people already. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think there's a whole lot in our catalog that would give them hope that this episode would be different. Yeah. I think so. I don't know. You oh, yeah. Should. <laughs> Just, like, prank people with it. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, my mom... Oh, my mom is an interesting person. Then she institutionalized me, so I don't really feel that bad about having mm-hmm. yeah. revenge fantasies about destroying her Rudolph viewing. <sighs> um, I think that's pretty mild in response, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I have a friend who just loves Rudolph and is probably going to listen to this podcast, and I yeah. feel kind of guilty. <laughs> nah. It's okay. I always, I always think of this podcast, right, like, it, it's... On the outside, it's like movies that you know and care about and are interested in, right? And it's, it's you know, it's it's a movie commentary slash review podcast, and, and we tend to pick pretty mainstream things. So that's sort of the Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then once you're already inside, it's like, let's actually, let's talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I feel like we're usually pretty positive. Okay. I think we read really like positive mad pride disability pride readings of a lot of them like with disney movies we look at the characters as mad and as symbolizing mad pride kind of and yeah we we sort of give mixed readings i think this might be one of the only movies that we've given like a really just a hard downer yeah (laughs) Uh, i will say this i think if you understand it you can change it yeah or at least if you don't understand it you can't change it yeah, I think. So yeah, I think there is. I think there is value. And again, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to show children all the bullying, because that is for many of them their reality. Absolutely. And I think there's there's something to be said for that. I think the issue is then what you do with it and how you discuss it. Yeah. And not always oh, great to like make your abusers happy. Yes. But I think <laughs> I think there's something to be said for watching. Rudolph with an abused child and just talking about how much of a mess this is and how the world should be and what we're trying to do to make it better. Yes, yes. And I, yeah, I think it's just, it could not be more important to tell kids that, yeah, the way out of this situation is not to make their abusers happy, is not to become useful, is not to work themselves to death like me until they're totally burnt out and sleep deprived and hate everything. Like, it is to recruit the abominable snowman and storm the castle. Yes, and burn everything down. <laughs> because that is the reality of most disabled kids in America, is, mm-hmm. is isolation from the disability community. Yes. Because, first off, we've understood integration not as access to everything, but as dispersion. Mm-hmm. Right? Or else, they're, they're clumped into these like segregated little clumps. Yes, yes. In any event, they are largely raised by people with not a disability mindset, and that's not a criticism. They're not disabled, mostly. Um, but in a context where we really devalue disability and have all these horrible ideas about it. And, and one of the things that I've really been pushing is to try and, okay, I'm spectacularly unlikable in many senses. I mean, I think I'm charming, but apparently people outside of my head don't agree very, very often. <laughs> um, so I'm not very successful with this. 
really trying to push parents to, you know, explore with their kids, like the legacy of Roland Johnson or the history of the ADA or to uh -huh. learn about ADAPT or, um, or to, you know, I mean, there's all these really cool things out there that disabled people have done that children never hear about. Yeah. To give them these kinds of role models and, and understanding. And if you look at Rudolph, one of the things about Rudolph is like, everybody else has a black nose, but this one guy. Right. I mean, not Santa, but all the other deer, right? Mm -hmm. Right. He's alone. He's alone. And realistically, that pretty, or I guess it's a small town. But, I mean, it doesn't really happen. There's actually disabled people all over the place. Yes, yes. And more of them are older, but there's plenty of disabled children. We just deny that this one is disabled and we keep them separated and, you know. Right, right. We don't let them come together and develop a disability consciousness. We split them up by subgroups. Yes. Yes. So I got parents telling me my kid was so included he was the only disabled child in his class. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if there was only one disabled kid out of 30, that's not inclusion. No, that's not. You know, that's 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 either your kid didn't even know who was in his class right. or has segregated basically everybody. Right, right. Because you know there was in that in that cohort the 30 kids that should have been in that class like if everybody was educated together would have included somebody with ADHD and would have included somebody with with dyslexia and would have included not necessarily somebody with a mobility impairment because there's it's fewer than one in 30 right mm -hmm. um, but you know uh, some kid who had experienced trauma probably right it's a very rich area um, rich kids experience trauma yeah, but at a lower rate. I I don't know. I hesitate because I, I really do think rich parents put all of the expectations on kids and there's kind of this idea that you need to perform and you need to be good and you need to succeed and maintain our class status. And if you don't, you know, you're a complete failure. And that's, you know, that's pretty traumatic for a kid, not in a material sense, in the way that poverty is, but um, in a psychological sense, that's very traumatic. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I also think, you know, there's places where literally every child is afraid of getting shot on the way to school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, whereas some rich kids are sheltered. Right, right. right. Um, it's easier to shelter your kid if you have resources. Yeah, for So sure. I think, yeah, but I'm, yeah, I'm probably being... I mean, you know, you wouldn't get every disability represented in a class of 30 kids, but you'd get a number of them. Yeah. A yeah. sampling, a smattering. Mm -hmm. What you wouldn't get is three wheelchair users and four deaf kids. Right, right. If it's totally random. Yeah. Um, right. And, yeah, and, but Rudolph's alone. Yeah. yeah. He's got, he's got nobody to teach him any different. Mm-hmm. Or... I don't know, to your point, maybe everyone else, everyone else is hiding it better or that, like, nobody knew that he had the nose until he, like, goofed and, like, you know, yeah. like, blew his cover. But, like, there could have been someone else in that group who had weird hooves and was just wearing, like, you know, shoes or something. You know, like, I, they that, that's the other, like, isolating thing is, like, telling everybody just cover it up and just pretend to be normal yeah that's what i ultimately think disability is is like the lack of ability to hide your abnormality or mm. hide your difference or whatever like most people 
can like I, I kind of really disagree with this binary between like non-disabled and disabled I think most people are struggling in some way most people are incredibly limited we're human beings but some people can hide their limitations better than others due to support and accommodation and the world being built for them um, or just the resources they've been given or family upbringing or whatever um, and then some can't and struggle a lot more well, I come out of the British tradition, right? And I don't use this language anymore because it just doesn't work in America. Nobody understands what the hell you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, there's impairment, right. which is fairly widespread. Right? Yes, And yes. impairment is like the inability to do something that is taken for granted that people you should be able to do. Mm -hmm. um, or to, to do it in the same way or to do it for as long or as you know well or as whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which impairment is pretty much what we call disability here in the US. Mm -hmm. And then disability is um, the, the being shut out of, the, this, the structural being shut out of uh, right. the benefits of society. Right, right. So Rudolph is the only, quote, disabled, unquote, um, reindeer there. But he, he's probably not the only one with an impairment. Yeah, yeah. The others are just not structurally affected because uh, their impairments are not such that they cannot be hidden. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. yeah and, and I'm not saying that passing is like, yay, privilege. Right, right. Uh, it, it, it very much isn't, but it's a different lack of privilege than not passing in a way that would get people to pile on top of you. Yes, yeah, that's a really, really good way to put it. I mean, I don't pass at all anymore, and in many ways, I'm far more privileged than I could pass better. Mm -hmm. I've I've heard that from like multiple people. Um, I've heard that from some other like trans activists too, like people who are trans and disabled, that they feel significantly freer when they lose their ability to pass because suddenly they're just like on the other side of the fence. They're like not expected to pass or expected to seem normal. Well, see, <clears throat> I never was normal, right? But there were all kinds of attributions for why that was. The wheelchair is the best social prosthetic I've ever had because all of a sudden, all this stuff I can't do that I can't do for cognitive reasons, people attribute to mobility. Oh, right? so I'm not making good. eye contact. That's an autism thing, right? It's not about mobility. People assume it's because I can't control my head now. And so they give me a pass in a way that they never did before. Oh, it used to be a big moral issue, and it still can be. I got chewed out for not making eye contact uh, last week mm -hmm. uh, at the Center for Independent Learning, which wow. I'm really angry about. Yeah. But I get away with it a lot more. Or, um, you know, just being completely overwhelmed and overloaded because of the sensory stuff. Mm -hmm. Used to be, you know, well, you know, Cal's just lazy. And now they're like, well, you know, I mean, it must be really exhausting to be in a wheelchair. It's like, I'm the only one that's not walking. You know, you're putting way more effort in getting around. I'm moving a joystick. But for some reason, they think it's more exhausting to use a joystick. That is interesting. People do think that. Yeah. Like, I've probably assumed that in the past and haven't really questioned it, that people assume that it's way I mean, more there's legitimate stamina issues that coexist. Right. With things that result in using a joystick. I'm not saying... But, you know, at the same time, I always feel really bizarre when people want me to go ahead and get in line because I use a wheelchair. I'm like, I am literally the only one sitting down in this line. Right. 
<laughs> I can probably wait longer than you. Yeah, yeah. That's so fast. You are on your feet. Yeah. So, but, yeah. so yeah, I, I. So I mean, if whatever is going on with like Blitzen or whoever, mm -hmm. I'm not saying Blitzen got an easy time of it, but it's a different hard time than Rudolph. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. sure. But it definitely shows, I think, how disability recognition, disability accommodations would just benefit everybody because it's it's not just about accommodating a certain group. It's about making life easier for everyone, making it easier for everyone to talk about their impairments, to talk about um, limitations and to get accommodated and get supported for that. And I'm, I'm a complete heretic. I don't believe in invisible disability. Me neither. I don't believe it exists. I also don't believe in invisible disability. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I mean, the, the paradigmatic visible disability is wheelchair use. Yeah, yeah. But it's, you don't see the disability, you see the wheelchair, right? Mm -hmm. If you take the person out of the wheelchair, put them in like a, a lounge chair, have them watch TV, bring somebody in, are they going to see the disability? No, they're not, because the wheelchair isn't there. Mm -hmm. So what's visible is not. It's recognition. And even the people that are quote, most, quote, invisible disabled, if you know them, if you know what affects them, you can see it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if people can see it, it can't be that invisible. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. And then also, I think the construction between physical and mental, I don't necessarily believe in that. I think that, like, autism affects people physically, both their bodies and their minds, depression, PTSD. Like, yeah, it's um, and then physical disabilities impacts people mentally and yeah like I, I may know somebody who, who for example again i'll go back to anxiety and i like to pick on anxiety because it's something that people are like yeah it's not a big deal i know the people i know with anxiety it looks like a pretty big deal to me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah uh, you know and and i mean i've had anxiety but probably not to that level so uh, just because it's also something that we use colloquially but um right mm -hmm. and, I, and i know people that you know like um, if if they start saying something like I got to go to the bathroom and you know they went like an hour and a half ago, mm -hmm. what you're probably seeing is, is impairment right there. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Probably, and maybe maybe he just drank a lot of long shot. It could happen, right? Yeah. But a lot of the times, that's right there. That and it's it's not about what's visible or not visible. It's about what you recognize, and that's partly about what you know enough to recognize, and it's partly about well. You know this this politics of recognition we're willing to acknowledge yes right because i can say oh, are you walking out of the meeting again i mean what kind of a loser are you right? right and that's about me being willing to recognize what's actually going on right yes yes right. Um, and and that's not about their disability or their impairment that's totally about me mm-hmm but we don't, we don't ever conceive of it that way. Like, I get a pass if I don't acknowledge your disability, if I just say it's invisible. Right. Absolutely. But, I mean, if it was completely invisible, I wouldn't be commenting on it at all, would I? No. That's very true, yeah. So... And I, Anyway, so we've rambled quite far. <laughs> I apologize for that. That's some Christmas episode, huh? Yes. <laughs> so, listeners, tell us what you think. 
about Rudolph. Tell us how you relate, how this um, is similar or different from your own experience or similar or different from the messages that you've received as a kid and that you continue to receive. Yeah. And uh, and also, I don't know, Cal, do you have a, a Twitter? Do you have a, a website you'd like to, I don't know, point people to? Like, where do, we, where, where do they find you if they liked you? I post a lot on Facebook uh, where I'm Montgomery Cal, uh, I think is, is my handle, but you can just search me under Cal Montgomery. Um, I have a very occasionally updated WordPress, which is montgomerycal.wordpress.com. And then I'm on Twitter, Cal, two underscores in Montgomery. Um, which, yeah, I'm not very good at Twitter. You <laughs> may have noticed that limiting myself to like 140 characters or 280 or whatever is just not my strength. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can't deal with Twitter either, but like, I don't... <laughs> Some people like it, that's their choice. They're wrong, but they're allowed to be wrong. <laughs> what the hell? You know, show up at an adapt action, I might be there. Um, and... Yeah, we all do different stuff, but that's where I'm most visible these days. And that organization, you can check it out at adapt.org. Adapt.org, you got it. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for indulging in my willingness to perseverate on Rudolph. Oh, please, we're happy to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for lending us your expertise and all of your ideas. Well, I can't wait to for this to come out. Me too. All right. Okay. Christmas Eve. I'll make my dog listen to it. He's deaf, so he won't care, but I'll <laughs> him to sit there while it <laughs> Merry Christmas to all who celebrate. Happy. And to those who don't, just... <laughs> just fuck you. Just kidding. <laughs> just take it. Just... Congratulations on getting through the season of Relentless Christianity. Yes. Yes. That. <laughs> Take a deep breath. You're going to make it. Yes. Also, happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Winter Solstice. Um, whatever else people celebrate. Happy that. You know. Yes. Happy New Year. Yeah. And uh, we'll catch you around. Mad love. Bye. But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glowed. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never let poor Rudolph join in any reindeer game. Then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? Then how the reindeer loved him, as they shouted out with glee. Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, you've begun history. Reindeer, you go down in his store.